0: We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified.
1: Nehemiah chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, and Ananiah, Uriah, Akiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Mechijah, Hesham, Hezbollah, Zechariah, and Mishael. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands, and they bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, uh, Jabin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hudejah, um, Messiah, Goliath, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Goliath, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was a governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept. When they heard the words of the law, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all the cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths, as it is written, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one of the, on, on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or in the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until the day that the children of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner.
0: Thank you, Drew, for that reading. I invite you to turn in your Bible to First Timothy chapter five this evening. First Timothy chapter five. Maybe you were with us last time we were in this section. We were actually over in the fellowship hall, hoping that a tornado wouldn't make its way into the church there. We hadn't, we didn't have some power, at least not in the whole building. So we met over there, and it was a nice time. We sang some hymns, and uh, read the Word, and uh, looked into this section of God's Word for a little while, and I enjoyed that. But this evening, we're back here in the uh, main part of the building here, and uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 this evening, verses 9 to 16, which is really just a continuation of verses 3 through 8, which we looked at last time. And if you weren't here, well, we'll do a little bit of a review in order to catch you up to speed. On that section, but what Paul is doing right here in this section is he's writing to Timothy to to provide some very specific instructions, some specific details on how Timothy and therefore the church as a whole is to care for one another, and particularly in this section, how he and the church is to care for widows. And I think the truth that. Paul is teaching us in this section, specifically nine to 16, but really three through 16, is that while the church has a responsibility to support true widows, and we defined what a true widow was last time, and we'll further define that this evening by the instructions Paul writes here. But while the church has the responsibility to support true widows, younger widows, Paul instructs were, instructs, were to remarry and assume their domestic responsibilities. And so, really, if we could even boil it down more, we could say that the church has a responsibility to support true widows, but not all widows, not all widows. And we'll look at what that exactly means in our passage here this evening. In verse 3, we were taught that the church is to honor widows. Look with me at verse 3. Paul writes, honor widows who are really widows or true widows widows. Now, the word honor, we said in this context, means much more than merely acting respectfully in their presence, although that is something that we ought to do. They're older, probably wiser, and we are to respect them for that age and the wisdom that they have. But the word honor here means more than just acting respectfully in their presence. It means to give them financial assistance as well, and, uh, or assist them in other tangible ways. In which they have need. With the implication then that in doing that you are showing appropriate means of respect. You are showing them respect by assisting them financially or assisting them in other tangible ways that they have uh, needs for. And so it means again more than just acting respectfully in their presence, but to help them, to care for them as family. Remember, that's what Paul tells Timothy to treat those around him in the church-like, right, as family, mothers as, you know, or women and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters and so on, as we saw in verses 1 and 2. However, the church, Paul states, is not responsible for supporting every widow. The church is not responsible for supporting every widow. Only those who are true widows are eligible for the church's support. Now, in verses uh, 4 through 16, Paul then is going to define what a true widow is, what a true widow is, what a real widow is. Paul enumerates the qualities that must characterize widows wishing to be enrolled in the support of the church. What are these qualities? What, What criteria are there in order for a widow to be supported by the church? Well, we'll look at that in just a moment, but let me just say one note aside, a side note here. Of course, all widows need caring for. Paul's not saying that some widows are more valuable in in some sense than others. He's not saying that. He's not saying to neglect that some widows should be neglected. He's simply saying that the church is not responsible to support them all. It simply cannot, for one, in some cases, when there's, you know, perhaps it's a small church and there's, you know, numerous widows, they can't perhaps fully support them financially. just wouldn't be possible with the finances they have. But simply put, too, Paul says they don't have that responsibility. Not only may they not be able to because of financial means, but they, they don't have this responsibility to do this. And so while the church has a responsibility to support true widows, as we said, younger widows, he, Paul is going to tell us, are to remarry and assume their domestic responsibilities. And as a means of application, I just want to put it at the front here uh, as we look at this passage as a whole. As a church, and I'm saying us, Fellowship Bible Church, we'll make this personal, we ought not to neglect our responsibility to honor those who are true widows. We must do that. It is a command. And this could come in the form of benevolence or a fund devoted to this kind of ministry. We could have that in our church—a fund set aside for widows in need, those who are true widows. Of course, every church has to make a decision on what exactly that looks like, how they want to, how they want to kind of uh, figure all of that out and make plans and strategies for that. But It could look like something like just pulling out of your benevolence or having a fund. But as a church, we must determine to do something when the need arises because Scripture commands us to do this. And whatever we determine to do will be based on what seems most sensible for our situation. But we cannot neglect that responsibility to honor them. A second point of application is this. Paul's instructions teach us that we have an individual responsibility to show honor to our own family members who are in need, specifically widows in our family. To neglect, to care for family members, is to forsake the greatest virtue of the Christian faith, to love. Look with me at uh, verse 8. Of chapter 5. Paul writes this. We looked at it last time briefly. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own family, or his own, the widows in his family, or her family, and especially for those of his household, Paul writes, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I don't think that Paul specifically means that he's apostatized. Perhaps that is true, but really I think it means, like I said just a moment ago, that he has forsaken one of the greatest virtues of the Christian faith, which is to love one another, to love your family, your own blood family, but also family in Christ. And in doing that and forsaking that responsibility, Paul says, he's worse than an unbeliever. And I take that to mean that even an unbeliever recognizes the very basic responsibility to to love his family and to to care for their needs. And so what a tragedy when a Christian neglects to do what even an unbeliever recognizes as a simple responsibility that he has for his family. Well, we pick up this evening in verses 9 to 16, which I said again earlier was really just a continuation of verses 3 to 8. Don't try to separate it too much in your mind. We did that merely for sake of time, but it really is is all one section here. And in verses 9 and 10, we see this, that widows, uh, we see uh, Paul defining what kind of widows the church is responsible to support. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Paul writes this, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul is continuing to define what a true widow is. And in contrast, what a, what, a, uh, what a kind of widow that would not be supported is, should not be supported is. Now, perhaps in reading verse 9, you, you uh, pause for a moment and are asking yourself this question. What does Paul mean when he says, uh, be taken into the number? He says, uh, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. What number is Paul thinking of here? What is what is uh, he describing? I believe that Paul is speaking of what would be an apparently an official list on which widows who qualified for the church's support were added to. So somewhere in the bookkeeping, so to speak, there is a list in which widows' names were written down on when they were added to or uh, when they were be, became supported by the church, when they were receiving support from the church, and this official list then would be the guide for the church to know, you know, who was on, who is, uh, who were true widows in the church, and who, uh, which widows were relying upon the church to meet their needs. Of course, likely this list was not stagnant; names would have likely been added or removed as needed, as you know, widows became widows as. Married women uh, lost their husbands and they became widows or perhaps the widow passed away and the name would be removed or in some cases perhaps the widow remarried and therefore you know, no longer needed the kind of support from the church that she once needed. So this list, I believe, functioned then to keep careful record of the widows who were dependent upon the church's support. It would have been a tragedy if, you know, the church would have overlooked a widow because, well, they didn't maybe have a good list, a good record of the number of widows who needed support. Perhaps if it's a very large church, that could take place. In a smaller church, perhaps like ours, we would have more of a mental list, but maybe a written list would not be a bad idea as well. Because in one sense, I think what this list functioned to do it functioned to formalize that relationship between the widow and the church so that the widow knew that she would be cared for. You know, if it was more just a mental list, and not that that's wrong, perhaps, you know, are they going to remember this month, or, you know, was this actually an agreement? But this official list functioned to assure the widow that, no, I'm, I'm under the care of the church. This is something that's being taken seriously, and I can rely upon them. And there wouldn't be a need for fear about, you know, uh, whether or not her needs would be met, this seems then to imply that there were many widows who were being supported in the church in uh, in Ephesus, some of which Paul says should not be added to the list because they didn't qualify as true widows, or perhaps they in an you know awkward kind of way maybe needed to be removed from the list. They were on the list, but Paul writes this letter. And now they say, uh oh, you know, that, that widow shouldn't be on the list. And so they would have had to remove perhaps a number from the list because they did not meet the qualifications that Paul is writing out here to the church. And there are three qualifications that we see here in verses 9 and 10, in addition to what we looked at uh, in verses 4 through 8, which really are just uh, a reiteration here of of verses 4 through 8 in some sense. And the first of these qualifications is this, the widow must be over the age of 60, or Paul puts it in a kind of uh, a different way, a negative way. He says, do not let a widow under 60 years be taken into the number. So the implication is, well, if she's above, then she can be added. Of course, at first glance, this may seem a little harsh. As you think about younger widows, Well, perhaps their financial needs were just as great, if not greater, in some sense. You know, maybe uh, she hasn't had the kind of, uh, you know, she hasn't been putting away the money because she's younger and they need it to feed the mouths of the kids. And so she doesn't have that kind of stability. And if she has kids, well, then, you know, there are mouths to feed versus an older widow, perhaps, you know, just has herself. Her kids are grown and they're fending for themselves, but... So at first glance, it may seem a little harsh because the needs of younger widows seem to be just as great, if not greater. But Paul gives his reasons for this instruction in verses 11 to 15. So just hold on a moment and we'll see why he says this. One reason being, I think, is that widows who were over the age of 60 were less prone to the problems younger widows were presenting in the church, which we'll see in verses 11 to 15, years of age and wisdom and spiritual maturity allowed them to overcome some of the temptations and some of the problems that the younger widows were facing or, uh, or uh, succumbing to in the church. And so we have this age of 60. And I think a few of us talked about this last time. You know, is, is 60 the, the hard number? You know, what if they're 59 and a half? And uh, I, I don't take Paul to be thinking of a hard, fast number, at least when it comes to the application to us today. Maybe in that time there were so many widows that, you know, you kind of just had to pick an age. Otherwise, you know, there could have been twice the number or something like that. But I think what Paul is saying is that uh, they need to be older, at least past uh, what we would think of a typical marital age. Not that they can't get married, you know, past 60, but they aren't young; they don't have some of the same desires, even sensual desires, as younger widows have. And so Paul gives this number sixty as a as an age in which uh, which was functioned as a requirement to be added to the list. And so the first qualification then is that the widow must be over the age of sixty. The second qualification that Paul gives is that the widow must have practiced faithful, uh, or practice marital faithfulness. Look with me at verse 9 again. He says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Widows who, um, or this requirement is similar to the requirement that we see of elders and deacons. Remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 3? What does Paul say of elders and then uh, also in verse 12 of deacons? They are to be what? One woman, one woman, men. Well, this is kind of, Paul flips it around and he says, a one husband, woman, or one man, woman, meaning the same idea that, uh, that she is to have a testimony of being faithful in her marriage to her husband to his death. course this was not a prohibition to remarry paul is not saying that they cannot remarry just like perhaps you know a elder who loses his wife he paul is not prohibiting back in chapter 3 that he could not remarry this isn't about the marriage status it's about his faithfulness or her faithfulness in the marriage to their death and so Paul is saying that not only do they have to be over the age of 60, but they also have to have been faithful in their prior marriage. Of course, once the, the uh, spouse dies, we know from Scripture that that person is freed to remarry, if they so choose. They should, of course, remarry someone that is godly, a godly person, a godly spouse, equally, equally yoked to them. So as I said, this was not a prohibition for widows to remarry. Um, Of course, I think uh, quickly back to what the false teachers were prohibiting prohibiting in chapter 2. Remember, Paul says they are prohibiting people from marrying, being given in marriage. And so Paul likely is not doing this. He's not discouraging them from remarrying. He's simply saying, be faithful. They must have been faithful in that marriage. So based on that, then, you know, this widow could have been a widow of two or three men. She could have been a widow or been married and then lost the husband, become a widow, and then found another husband. Perhaps he then died. And so Paul's not saying that kind of woman isn't eligible. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in any of those marriages, she needed to be faithful in each of them. The third qualification that Paul gives in this section in verses 9 and 10 is that the widow must have a testimony of practicing good works. Look with me at verse 10. He says uh, she is to be well reported for good works. And then what I think comes after that phrase there is a list of the kind of good works expected of her, the kind of good works that characterize a, a godly widow. That is, if she has brought up children, that is a good work if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good works. And so the good works here are are simply just a general example of the kind of works that this widow should have been doing and would have been doing if she was a godly one. Good works could include rearing children, like Paul says, showing hospitality to travelers uh, remember, that's the same, uh, same kind of requirement that Paul gives of, de- of elders. He says uh, they are, back in chapter 3, verse 2, he says uh, they are to be hospitable. And likewise, these widows were to demonstrate the same kind of godliness by being hospitable to strangers, to those traveling through. Also, uh, she would be a kind of person that is willing to serve the church in lowly ways, like washing feet. A menial task, but a one that demonstrates humility and a love for the brethren. She would be the kind of person who helped the oppressed. Remember what we spoke about last time? God's character demonstrates that he has a love, a compassion for the oppressed. Those like orphans and widows and foreigners, that is strangers in the land. And finally, he gives another example. He says in a kind of a general way that she is one who has diligently followed every good work. Paul, I think here, does not have in mind a strict list of good works that the widow must fulfill in order to be added to the list. Rather, he's simply giving examples of the kind of good works that characterize a godly widow. If, if she's godly, she will have a life that looks like this. And Paul gives a list of, kind, of the kind of things that she will do. It's not like this is a checklist, you know, and if I do one, two, three, I'll get in. This is a lifestyle that Paul is speaking of. She has this kind of lifestyle prior even to her losing her spouse. So let's remember as we look through this section that Paul's primary purpose for these instructions is to differentiate between older godly widows deserving of the church's support and ungodly widows who should not receive the church's support or simply younger widows who... Paul has separate instructions for that we'll look at in just a moment. Now, if widows failed, failed to meet any of the previous three qualifications, which Paul writes about in verses 9 and 10, or if they had immediate or extended family who could care for them, so one or the other, either they have immediate family who can care for them, or they failed to meet these three qualifications, Paul says they should not receive support from the church. And Paul, uh, he uh, expounds upon this in verses 11 to 15, where he, he talks about the kind of widows that the church is not to support. They're not responsible for supporting. Look with me at verse 11. Paul writes, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have become to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, Paul writes, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. And so Paul then is is expounding upon those who should not be supported by the church in verses 11 to 15. And he begins by saying that they should refuse the younger widows. If we connect that with what he said in verse nine, well, we can derive from that. Then anyone younger than 60 would be considered a younger widow. The widow who is less than 60 should not be supported by the church. Now, Again, I say that it might seem a bit partial that Paul would exclude younger widows from receiving support because their needs could be just as great, if not greater. However, Paul gives two reasons for excluding younger widows in the end of verse 11 and all the way through uh, verse 13. The first reason being this, younger widows, Paul says, tend to abandon their faith after sinful pleasures. Younger widows tend to abandon their faith for sinful pleasures. Imagine for a moment, if you could, in your mind, a young woman who, has, woman who has lost her husband. She is still young and attractive. She has lost now her spiritual leader, her protector, her guardian against alluring men. What kind of state does that leave her in? Well, it leaves her in a vulnerable state, it is possible or even probable that she then may turn away from Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says grow wanton against Christ. That is, she gives into her sensual desires and chooses to go after perhaps some, some unbelieving man because you know he allures her and she doesn't have the kind of guardianship and protection that she once had. And again, she's young and likely attractive at that young age, and so she gives in to those sensual desires and goes after an unbelieving man. Of course, I don't think Paul is saying that this is always the case. I think each of us can think of perhaps a younger widow who is a very godly person and wants to serve the Lord and wants to raise her children well and wants to find perhaps a godly spouse So Paul's not saying this is always the case, but he is, I think, making a very, uh, well, obviously true statement that it is the tendency for younger women to fall into this this situation of growing wanton against Christ or turning away from Christ after sinful pleasures. And in doing uh, this, in turning away and acting ungodly, uh, Paul says that, they have condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Verse 12 tells us this. Now, the word faith here is sometimes translated as pledge, uh, especially, I think, in the classical Greek. It's translated as pledge. So it would read something like they have cast off their first pledge instead of faith. Faith. And those who take that translation that the word should be pledge, suggest that Paul is speaking of widows who have taken a pledge not to remarry but to serve the church for the remainder of their of their life. In order and you know with that then having the the uh, promise that they would have the church's financial support. But I don't believe Paul is speaking about remarriage here or the the. Uh, the uh, prohibition of being remarried. Paul was certainly not prohibiting widows from remarrying if they had been faithful to their former husband. Rather, I think Paul is speaking about uh, her former faith, and I think faith is the better word here to translate it. So Paul is not speaking about a pledge that these widows made to serve the church for, you know, the rest of their life and to not remarry, but rather in connection to what he's just said about them turning away from Christ, what Paul is saying then is that they've abandoned their former profession of faith that they had. She has then we could say has demonstrated by giving into sensual desires and falling for an unbelieving man. She has demonstrated that she has abandoned the Christian faith that she has once professed before you know, in her former marriage. And so the basic concern Paul is alluding to in these verses is not the idea of pledges or remarriage. Rather, the problem is self-indulgence and the resulting immorality that these, these widows are demonstrating and participating in. I uh, thought about this in my study of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Actually, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Turn back. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I had that written down wrong. Maybe that's not the one either. (laughs) Well, give me a moment to think about it, but... It called, it called to my remembrance uh, that the false teachers were easily uh, easily ensnaring these vulnerable women. And I think those women that Paul is speaking about is the women, in part, is women who are widows, who have uh, you know, perhaps the lack of responsibility in their life without a husband, without uh, the responsibility of serving her husband and serving in the home. And, and Satan uses that to his advantage then to to send in his agents, as it were, false teachers to to, uh, cause them to go astray, to follow after false teachings and to participate in immorality. And Paul then says along with this, not only have they grown wanton against Christ or abandoned their, their faith, going after their sensual desires and immorality, practicing immorality, but they also do this, he says in verse 13, the second reason for refusing younger widows. He says, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. And this is the second reason younger widows were to be excluded, because they were demonstrating their ungodliness and the lack of Christian faith and In virtue, and whereby then Paul is saying, exclude them. Whereas the godly widows use their freedom to do good works. Remember what we we read in verses nine and ten. Whereas they use their freedom—that is, their—you know—they no longer have that responsibility to their husband. They have more time uh, to serve the Lord. And how how do they use it? Paul says, well, they use it to you know serve others and to raise up their children and and serve the church and serve the afflicted. That stands in contrast to the younger widows who use their freedom to do useless things, ungodly things. The younger widows were using their freedom to waste time and create problems in the life of the church. They became idle, and then they became gossips and busybodies. It's a shame that this happens, and it was happening, instead of using their widowhood as an opportunity to serve the Lord or just simply remarry if they could, they used that freedom to become gossips and busybodies. It's interesting, I found, uh, I think, kind of uh, Paul is using a level of sarcasm here. He says, that they, that they learn to be idle in verse 13. Learn to be idle. How do you learn to be idle? <laughs> it's like almost like he's saying you know, they practice it. They train to be that way. Instead of learning to be a gossiper, they should have been learning how to serve the Lord more effectively, how to pray, how to show hospitality, how to diligently be following every good work, as verse 10 says. Instead, they use their, tar- their time to learn how to be idle. The word busybody means to talk foolishly. You know, they, they, they just use their, their time and their, their mouth to talk foolishly and to go about doing nonsense, Their time was spent talking about nonsense with one another and thereby creating conversations that were likely not edifying and had no value to them, only creating problems in the church through their gossip and through their busy bodying, if I can say it that way. These kind of women, then, Paul teaches us, are not to be supported by the church. Those who are evidencing a lack of, of Christian faith a lack of of faithfulness and perseverance to the Lord in the Lord rather going after the ways of the world Now Paul then has a little bit of more instruction though for the younger widows there are those who are who are ungodly doing these kind of foolish things ungodly things but Paul then gives some instructions Perhaps we could say for those who are widowed, but desire to be faithful to the Lord, unlike the others." look with what he says in verse 14. He says, "Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully." Instead of becoming idlers and busybodies, Paul instructs then younger widows to remarry. And I think what Paul is saying then is in doing so, that is in remarrying, they can avoid some of these tendencies that Paul has just spoken about and rather be productive in their young age instead of idle. This is solid, wise advice that Paul is giving. Of course it is, it's scripture, but in a very practical sense, it's, it's wise and very solid advice. Remarrying would provide this widow the support that they need, that is the financial support. It would give them back the spiritual leadership that they need in order to avoid Satan's tactics and enticements. It would give them an opportunity to raise a family together, or if she already had children from her previous spouse, it would give their children a father figure. Paul's advice is pretty simple here they were to remarry. This would mitigate, then, the temptation to depart from Christ, to grow wanton against Christ, as Paul says. They would also have the noble task, if they remarry, of bearing and raising children, along with managing a house. Any young mother knows that managing a house and rearing children is will keep you busy enough. To keep you from being idle, <laughs> uh, perhaps it'll keep you too busy at times, and you like that break. But it keeps you busy. It keeps you productive. It keeps you serving the Lord and doing good deeds by raising your children to serve and love the Lord and managing the home so that the husband, you know, has a place to call home and come home to and to enjoy with his with his wife. This is. Much better use of time than the kinds of things that these other younger widows were doing. This is pleasing in the Lord's sight to do this. If they remarry, also, it will give no occasion for the adversary to speak reproachfully of them. Paul says this here at the end of verse 14. I think what Paul means here when he says this is that it, it gives no opportunity for those who are on the adversary side, so those who are unbelieving, to speak reproachfully about them. So it's not as if really the, the devil himself is speaking reproachfully, but the devil is using those who are his children, the children of the devil, unbelievers. He's using this, op- this as an opportunity to speak reproachfully against the people of God when younger widows go off and grow wanton against Christ. And so Paul is saying to avoid this occasion, be uh, remarry and do, uh, go about doing your responsibilities in order to uh, mitigate this possibility and this opportunity for the devil to speak against the church. Finally, Paul says in verse 15 and 16, he says, For some have already turned aside after Satan. So we see here in verse 15 the occasion for these instructions. The unfortunate side is that this was happening. Some younger widows were already turning aside after Satan, after his ways. They were going after their sensual desires, becoming gossipers and busybodies. And so Paul writes to them, to correct this kind of living and lifestyle. And then in verse 16, Paul says, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. That is, care for them, help them, assist them. And do not, Paul writes, let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. And so what Paul is telling us in verse 16 is really just the capstone, a reiteration of what he's already said, that families were to take up the responsibility of caring for their own. The problem was that the church was overburdened by supporting too many widows. And maybe that's not the case for every church. Maybe uh, you know, maybe there are no widows for a time that are true widows. But maybe there's just one true widow Yet the church is still being overburdened because the family is neglecting to do what they are supposed to do. Maybe it's a small church. And even taking on one widow who's not a true widow is a burden, a financial burden to the church. And so Paul instructs again, like he did in verse 4, that families, individuals who have family members in their family who, who have a need, are to care for those needs so that the church not become overburdened. I just was thinking about this uh, as I was preparing this. The church's main responsibility is not to be, uh, you know, a caretaker for widows. Of course, that is a responsibility of the church to do that. It is one thing which it can do to demonstrate the love of Christ to those in the assembly of, of God's people But it is not its main mission, yet the world often looks at the church just like that, that that is its mission. And in doing so, we've, I think, created a culture in which the world looks at the church and then, you know, speaks reproachfully against them because they think that they're to be caring for the widows, they think that they're supposed to be caring for all the needy and all those, you know, who are on the street, and certainly we can do something, but that is not our main mission. We're not a soup kitchen. We're not a assisted living place. We're not a uh, you know, homeless shelter. Our main mission is to what? To be making disciples of Christ. And so when the church not only becomes financially burdened, but becomes so burdened by the the uh, responsibilities of making sure you know the financial funds are getting to this person and that person and it becomes more of a you know an organization of finances you know going here and there it becomes too distracted from their mission and maybe that's not the case in our church because we don't have that many widows but it certainly was the case here in ephesus where the focus uh... and the burdens became so great upon uh upon the church that Paul then writes about this very occasion in order to give them instructions on how to deal with it. So as we conclude this evening, let me just remind you of our responsibility to care for the widows who are true widows. And maybe we don't have those right now. Maybe we don't have uh, those who have those kind of needs. But we must be prepared when that occasion arises and not be caught off guard not be unready, unprepared, or begin to support those who are not truly widows and therefore uh, cause their own family members to forsake their responsibility to support their own family. And so let's think on that and let's uh, see how we can serve the Lord in that way, showing honor where honor is due in our own church family. Let's pray this evening as we close. Heavenly Father, as we go our way, may we consider our responsibility as a church corporately, Lord, to honor widows. Lord, because we know from your very character that you are compassionate toward the oppressed, toward, the, toward those who are downtrodden. Lord, may we demonstrate due honor where that honor is due. At the same time, recognizing that we are not responsible to support every widow, as some have neglected And abandon their form of faith, Lord, demonstrating ungodliness in their life. Lord, and also perhaps, Lord, there are some younger widows out there, Lord, who need these instructions. Lord, uh, as difficult as remarrying can be, Lord, as different as it is from being married the first time, Lord, may they recognize that in doing so they can avoid some of the dangers. Lord, that some others fail to recognize and become victims, too, by their own decision-making, Lord. So help us, Lord, to apply this, to live it out daily in our church and in our own personal lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.